All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, if you will, chapter 2. As we continue our look at the entire book of Revelation, and we're going to finish the whole book today. You'll be out by 7 o'clock this evening. Revelation chapter 2, we come to the third of the seven churches in which Jesus is addressing, the church at Pergamos. And let us begin by first reading, beginning in verse 12. And the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a, the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I believe that we are in a time of an incredible opportunity as Christians. The world has led people to begin to ask very serious questions about morality, mortality, and just the state of the world in general. I believe that we have an opportunity to be witnesses to the world around us like never before. As people are now asking deeper questions and are concerned about things that maybe just four years ago they hadn't even considered. However, though, there is a threat to this opportunity. There is a possibility that the churches of America will miss this opportunity, squander this time in which we have. I remember once years ago as a young man, I was just a couple years out of high school working at a company, and I was paired with this older gentleman who was training me in my sales position, and he really was into investing in stocks. And every week he would have another stock tip for me. And he, said, he would always say, oh, Eric, if you get in at the ground floor, you can retire by the time you're 50, and so forth. And I'll never forget one of the do those days that he came to me and he says, I've got a sure thing. Now, I was a young Christian and here I have someone coming to me saying that they have a sure thing. Usually means that they don't have a sure thing, right? But he says, I have this stock that just cannot fail. It, it, it's a new store that's coming into this area, a retail store coming into this area. And I guarantee that if you get in on the ground floor... You'll be set for life. 
And so I immediately, of course, in my wisdom and knowledge, and of course being 19 at the time, dismissed it. Well, unfortunately, that stock was Walmart. And of course, it exploded thereafter. Obviously, the Lord didn't want me to go down that path, but I always think of that opportunity that I had and didn't take advantage of. We today have an opportunity to be a light unto a very dark, troubling, and hurting world. And we can squander this opportunity if we become Christians who decide to reach the world by becoming like the world. We can squander this opportunity if we choose to compromise with the world rather than to stay firm in our convictions and to allow the light of Christ to shine through us. The church at Pergamos has been often designated the compromising church. Today, I think that we need to be reminded as Christians that it is capable for us to compromise and in so doing destroying our witness before the world. But what is compromise? Well, one author wrote it this way when he said, Now compromise is the point at which you sell your convictions. Compromise is the point at which you sell out your ideal or point which you stop obeying God. Compromise is the abandonment of principles to gain something at the end. He went on to write, he said, frankly, not persecution, but this kind of compromise is the fastest way to destroy the church's life and testimony. The great C.H. Spurgeon wrote concerning compromise, he said, compromise is very popular today. It was even in his day. But the Bible is a most uncompromising book, and the fear of the Lord is a most uncompromising principle. Greg Laurie wrote, he said, compromise is like trying to drive down the middle of the road. It's okay for a matter of time until an accident happens. And again, the other one wrote, compromise is so subtle that it takes us in before we even realize what is happening. Today in our text, we will find that the Christians there in Pergamos, some of them, chose to compromise with the world around them. Most likely what had occurred there in Pergamos was that once they had become Christians, they chose not to sever their affiliation with the various pagan gods of that city. Most likely they continued on in the observation and possibly worship of those gods to retain favor with those around them, and maybe even to to a degree to continue in their financial prosperities, knowing that they would have to do business with people who worship these pagan gods. And Jesus condemns them for it. Now, it wasn't the entire church at Pergamos that was engaged in these activities. It was a portion of the church. For there were others that when they were given the opportunity to deny their faith, as such as Antipas, who we know very little about, if anything, he chose to go to his death rather than to compromise his faith in Christ. So it was a mixed church. It was a church that was mixed, and concerning that 
mixing of the two, Jesus said one must repent. So let's take a look at it now more in-depthly. In verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, Pergamos was in line to become what is known as the first city of Asia Minor. It was a beautiful city. It was a large city. It was an extremely wealthy city, historians tell us. They were known for their elaborate temples to the various gods in whom were worshipped at that time. It was one of the very first cities that was ever given the right to resurrect a temple to the Caesar himself. It was a privilege that the city obtained for being the epicenter that it was. The city was also known for its medical community in the state that the medical profession was in at that time. And worshiping the god Anticlipus, we find that that could be the center of the attention that Jesus puts upon calling it where Satan's throne is. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. It was also known for its elaborate libraries. The libraries at Pergamos at that time contained some 200,000 200, parchments from around the world. It truly was, again, the epicenter of the, the regions of Asia Minor. And the Christians there were struggling. There were those in the church, again, who were faithful, who would not you know, renounce their faith in Christ, would not bow the knee to Caesar, and would not acknowledge the other pagan gods that were there, knowing that there is only one true God. But then there were others who wanted to have one foot in the Christian faith and one foot in the pagan community there. And when I say that, it encompasses the pagan practices from sexual immorality, the worship of idols through feasts, and also the, um, the, the loose moral standards that the pagan gods permitted. And this was all contrary to the Christian faith. As one wrote, John Wolverd, he says, compromise with worldly morality and pagan doctrine was prevalent in the church here at Pergamos, especially then when it came to the third century when Christianity became popular. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So compromise with pagan morality and departure from biblical faith soon corrupted the church. Jesus then identifies him at the second half of verse 12. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, this is imagery that is found clearly in Revelation chapter 1.16. In Revelation chapter 1, it is the preface to the entire book. It helps us understand how Jesus is presenting himself to these seven churches. And it also helps us understand his role in the, ver in the following chapters, from chapters 6 to 19, as we go through what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation Period. Jesus is clearly depicting himself now as the God who has come to judge the world. And that is emphasized by his return on a white horse. In that culture, when a king rode on a white horse into a, a foreign nation, it meant that he came there for the purpose to conquer. 
In his first coming, he came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, which also was symbolic of the fact of a king coming to his people in peace. But with the rejection of Jesus Christ and the world therefore continuing in its unbelief and the nation of Israel rejecting their Messiah, the second coming of Jesus Christ will show him as a victor coming back to claim his victory. But the imagery that we see here concerning the sharp two-edged sword, of course, we find in Revelation 1.16, For he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like that of the sun shining in its strength. Of course, the book of Hebrews reminds us that the word of God is also called the sharp two-edged sword. For in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. A sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And that's truly what Jesus is getting at here. I see your heart. I know the thoughts that you have. He can discern and judge righteously, dividing those who are faithful from those who are unfaithful. And allowing him to judge accordingly. And giving the opportunity to those who he finds unfaithful an opportunity to repent. And so he presents himself here as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now an interesting historical fact about the city of Pergamos. The city of Pergamos, according to historians, was one of the only cities in Asia Minor that was allowed to execute capital punishment. And therefore, the place in which an individual would be judged and uh, executed was signified by a large Roman sword. And so Jesus is basically, I believe, stating, don't be afraid of what they can do to you. Be more concerned about what God can do. And so he's approaching the compromising church in this way. And he is asking them to consider what he is about to say next. Verse 13. For I know your works, meaning he knows their deeds and what they are doing, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, and you hold fast to my name. And did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The works he does not elaborate on, but it is in a positive sense. He knows that even in the environment in which they find themselves, there are those who are still faithfully following Christ. Which again demonstrates to us that even... Today, we as Christians can still remain faithful to God even with the pressures that the world puts upon us to conform into its image. We can still be separate in the sense of sanctified. We can still honor and glorify God through that sanctification, allowing the world to see Him through us. And this is very important for our day and age. We are not compelled 
to conform into the image that the world wants to see us in, we can continue growing in our faith in Christ and remain faithful, even though the world today, of course, is putting more pressure on us than it has in a long time, to conform into their understanding and idea of what a true secular righteousness looks like. So we can be confident that even today we can walk faithfully with our Lord. But then he goes on to talk about where Satan's throne is, knowing the environment. What does he mean by this? Again, it was the epicenter for pagan worship, and there was no doubt that he had that in mind, meaning that you had the influence of all of these various uh, religions that were created to the various gods that have been created from Zeus, uh, a, 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 you know, leftover from the Grecian occupation of this area, still looked at at that time. There was a large temple in Pergamos of where Zeus was remembered and honored for his defeating of the Titans. And so Zeus was still there, but the one that's interesting and that I find interesting is one that was symbolized by a snake. One that was symbolized by a large snake. And again, being a medical uh, epicenter at that time, Asclepios, the god, the Greek god of medicine, the manner in which he was worshipped was very interesting. They would place snakes on the floor of the temple. And when someone was ill... Just before night were, were to fall, they would place that ill person in the temple, and if one of those snakes glided past them and touched them, they at that time saw that as the God himself touching them and hopefully healing them. And it was very interesting. Now, of course, Revelation gives us the understanding that the serpent in the garden was actually Satan himself. And so it is most probable that God is saying that, let us understand that the, the origin of all of these pagan gods is Satan himself. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible, I'm glad I don't speak for a living. Um, the Bible tells us clearly that there are only two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of Satan, the ruler of this world. And everything is delineated between those two. Either you are the kingdom of God or you are in the kingdom of Satan. Even if you think you're not in any of those uh, kingdoms, you are only deceiving yourself, discovering that you are truly led by the ruler of this world. So the acknowledgement of Satan being there. Now this is in no way prohibiting a Christian from finding medical attention. No way at all. And again, I'm so grateful that when I see my doctor, she doesn't put a snake on me. I'm very glad that we've advanced since that. Let us also remember that Luke was a physician in the Bible. And he tended to Paul's physical needs. And so it isn't a medical profession that is being addressed here, but the pagan religion itself that is represented by the snake, which of course the serpent of old tracks back to the garden itself. So you can understand that this is a very, very difficult 
uh, environment to live as a Christian who says that there's only one true God. These other pagan gods are false, and in fact, they all derive from Satan himself, okay? I don't think you're going to be a popular person at that point. But this is who they were addressing. And as we continue on, we see that some there remain faithful, even to the point of death, and calls this individual Antipas my faithful martyr. Now let us understand that in the Greek culture and in the Roman culture, the word martyr doesn't mean what it meant, what it means today. It didn't mean at that time the way we use it today. When we talk about martyrism, we are always referring to an individual who was pushed to the end, who sacrificed their life for the cause or purpose in which they were trying to forward. In the Roman culture, and more specifically the Greek word that is used here, the word martyr meant witness. Witness. That's why when Jesus told his disciples in the book of Acts that when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses to all the world. The word there is the same word that we use for martyrism today. And I think there's an interesting correlation there. That if we are going to be truly the witnesses for Jesus Christ that he is calling us to be, it is going to require of us these three things. Number one, to deny ourselves. Number two, to take up our cross. And number three, to follow after him. To be the witness that Christ has called us to be will require us to lay down our life in one way or another. In one way or another. And this martyr Antipas, who we don't know really anything about the circumstances, but it appears from the text in which we have that he was martyred for the purpose of his faith in Christ, clearly, and his possible unwillingness to accept or to compromise with the world around him. And again, he says very clearly, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And that was good. However, verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. It is interesting to me how often Balaam is used as an example of what not to do in the New Testament. Jude talks about the sin of Balaam. I would encourage you when you have a moment tonight to go back and to look at Numbers 22 to Numbers 24 to understand the the account of Balaam, a prophet of God who was persuaded by an individual named Balak, Balak came to Balaam knowing that he was a prophet of God and said, I want you to curse the Israelites. But Balaam said, I can't do that. I cannot curse the Israelites. Balak came back, and I'm summarizing, of course, and saying, well, I'll make it worth your while. And Balaam's like, even if you do, I can't curse. I can't say anything against the people of God. God wouldn't permit me to do that. But it appears that 
Balaam, you know, began to think about the opportunity that he was missing for financial gain. He says, I can't really curse them, but what can I do to help Balak and also be rewarded for it and not curse the people of Israel? So he told Balak how he may defeat them. Because Balak knew unless God wasn't going to defend his people, there was no way that Balak could ever overcome the people of God. So Balaam said, listen, I can't curse the people, but here's what you can do. You can encourage encourage them to begin to intermingle with the women of the various nations around them because God has forbidden that. And therefore, in those interracial, not interracial, but international uh, marriages, you can then lead them to pagan worship. And as a result, God himself will punish his people. And that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what occurred. Because Balaam was pursuing financial gain, he was willing to sell out the children of Israel. And as a result, the children of Israel fell into the trap that was laid before them, and problems occurred afterwards. Now, it appears that the individuals here in Pergamos began to intermingle with those of the pagan society, most likely because after they got saved, they refused to pull out of those pagan societies completely. And those societies, including the worship of the various pagan gods, the financial rewards of staying uh, close to those in whom they were doing business with. We know that the Christians of Asia Minor, once coming to Christ, were often uh, excluded from business practices. So not only did they lose their prominence within the city itself, but they lost their personal wealth because of their faith in Christ, etc., in hopes of trying to retain those positions of prominence and those positions of financial prosperity, they were willing to compromise their Christian faith. Now, leading them to the worship of these pagan gods, the sexual immorality that came through the worship of those gods, which, of course, sex was often used as a method to worship these pagan gods, but also leading them to entertain the feasts. And when he talks about eating meat sacrificed to idols, we know what Paul says about that in 1 Corinthians. But here in our text, what he is alluding to is that within those feasts where you participate at those times, let yourself understand that you're participating in the worship of those gods. And this was prohibited by Christ and they needed to repent of these things. So he says, again to them in verse 14, because you have these who, put, who hold to the doctrine, so it's the teaching of Balaam, allowing for these things to continue. Doctrine simply means teaching. And though the events of Balaam and Balak happened, of course, uh, years before, millennia before, the teaching, the understanding of these things were continuing to this day. One of the aspects of the culture of that time that the Christians wrestled against 
was the concept of what's known as antinomianism. A big word, if you use it in Scrabble the right way, in triple letter score, you look pretty good. But antinomianism is the idea that the grace of God that we enjoy is also a license to sin. Meaning that if I'm saved by grace, then what I do physically doesn't really matter. Now, does the Bible support that idea? Yes or no? Absolutely not. The Bible says it very clearly that not only have we been saved by grace, but there's also a prescribed manner in which God has called us to live. Now, let me be clear. We are saved by grace, and we do not do these things to obtain our salvation or to maintain it. But because we are new creations in Jesus Christ, God says, this is how the new creation in me should live going forward. And living in any other way that I have prescribed is living contrary to the new life in which I've been given. Meaning, this is what God doesn't want you to do anymore. He says, I've taken you out of those things, so don't look to go back to those things. The Bible says that there are two types of sin. There's the sin of omission and the sin of commission. Commission is doing those things that God says that we should not do. And the Bible is replete with things that God says that as Christians, we should not involve ourselves in. But there are also sins of omission. Sins where God has told us to do something and we choose not to do it. Both are serious to God. And nothing is going to destroy or diminish our witness faster is, as in the fact that if we begin to compromise and become like the world to reach the world, living as they live, our witness before the world will be destroyed. And people are looking for hope. People want answers to questions that only God can answer for them today. I am astonished at the number of conversations in the last three years that I have entered into. I have seen people get saved that I said, Lord, I know they're not too far from your reach, but they're, they seem like they're really close, okay? Come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because today the world is showing them that it does not have the answers to the deepest questions in which they are seeking answers to. This is where you and I come in. And though we may have been shut down in years past by our coworkers, by our family members, maybe our extended family members, our acquaintances, our neighbors, things have changed, haven't they? We are living in a society that I don't believe any of us thought we would ever see in our lifetime. And yet within all of this, an opportunity has arisen to give us a platform to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's go for it. Let's do it. But if we choose to compromise, if we choose to become like the world, to reach the world, we are going to destroy that opportunity. But God had one more thing against them. Notice here with me in verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. 
which thing I hate. Now, the Nicolaitans were introduced to us first in the church of Ephesus earlier on in chapter 2. There is debate concerning what the teaching of the Nicolaitans actually is. There are some who believe the answer to that question lies in the word itself. The Greek term Nico means priest. The second half of that word, laetins, of course, is laity, the laity people. And some believe that the teaching of the Nicolaitans was the establishment of a hierarchy in which individuals in the laity needed to go through before they could enter into the presence of God. Okay, does that make sense? These priests were required mediators between the people and of God. Now, the Bible clearly tells us that in the Mosaic Covenant, that was absolutely true. But in the New Covenant, that has been eliminated by the person of Christ himself. Paul made it abundantly clear that there's only one mediator between man and God, the, person, the man Christ Jesus. That's possible. There are others, though, that indicate that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and this comes back to the first century church, Igneus, Hippolyus, and others, believe that what the Nicolaitans taught was that anything goes because you're saved by grace. They were truly the beginning of the antinomianism uh, understanding at, at that time, meaning that because we are saved by grace, we can live physically any which way we desire. Now, where did they get that from? Apparently, historians tell us that when Nicholas, one of the first deacons uh, that were appointed in the book of Acts chapter 6, went into all the world preaching the grace of God that many of his students misunderstood what that meant. And there was an influence of that time. Aren't you glad we don't get into deep things here? Uh, there was an influence of that time called Gnosticism. And the Gnostic influence, which John really, really refutes in 1 John, pushes back at the idea that the flesh doesn't matter in the whole equation meaning that you are saved in this particular method by grace and therefore how you live physically doesn't matter. They went as far as to say that Jesus Christ, when he died, simply died physically and did not die as God, releasing his deity beforehand. That's not true. That's not true at all. He died as God and rose again as God. So what we see here is that the Nicolaitan influence most likely enforced or reassured them that living in these pagan practices was acceptable, the doctrines of Balaam, and therefore they were fine and right before God, and yet God comes to them and says, no, this should not be. For he says in verse 16, now repent. It means change your mind, change your direction, or else I will come to you quickly, will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now notice, he does not, he does not say he'll remove his lampstand, which we saw in the ones in the past. But he says, I will deal with those individuals who are conducting themselves in this way. 
showing us that God is a righteous God and is able to uh, discern the thoughts and the intents of our heart individually. I know which ones are faithful and I know which ones are being unfaithful and that I will deal with if you do not repent of these things. And he says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give him the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, what in the world is going on here? The hidden manna, of course, is speaking and referring to the manna that was kept within the Ark of the Covenant. And it, of course, wasn't meant to be approached by man. It was handled in a very specific way. But most likely, it is a reference to Jesus himself, who, of course, in John's gospel, referred to himself as the bread of life. It also demonstrates that God in will reward his faithful followers and they will not have a need to partake in the feast that would require them to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now again, Paul shows us that, of course, we understand that that meat is only meat and though it was sacrificed to demons, not ask about it, not inquire of it. But in this case, it wasn't only the eating of the meat, but the partaking in the worship of these pagan gods. And Jesus is saying to remove themselves from such worship. And so he's assuring them that I will provide the needs that you have. You do not have to partake in these feasts to continue on and providing for yourself, if you're looking at it as a networking opportunity, a business opportunity, financial gain opportunity, etc. You know, sometimes we have to make decisions in the secular world that will bring about financial hardships. There are times in the business world that we have to say no. I talked about that job where I was in sales early on in my Christian life. And once I turned 21... Uh, the boss, the president of the company encouraged us to take our clients out for drinks to places that, of course, uh, no one should go, what we call gentlemen's clubs and so forth, uh, to, of course, try to solicit more business from them. And I couldn't do that, of course, as a Christian. I could not participate in those things and I prayed about it and fully knowing that I could have lost my job over that, I went to him and I said, I enjoy working here. I appreciate my job. I'll always do 100% for you. But this I cannot do because of my Christian faith. Thinking I would lose my job at that moment and, and start working at McDonald's as a fry guy, I was shocked to find that he, you know what he said to me? He says, I really respect you coming to me and telling me about your convictions in that area. 
He said, so listen, let's do this. Let me give you a desk in the office and you can work the phone sales instead. So not only did God, uh, not only did the Lord uh, give me the strength to say, no, I couldn't do those things that are being requested of me, but he also then provided a way that I could continue on working. This is where we need to trust the Lord. And that's what this hidden manna is really referring to. To be able to trust the Lord rather than to compromise for financial gain. But then we come to the idea of this white stone. This is fascinating. This is really, really fascinating. And I'd like to take a look at it with you, if I may. One historian wrote this. He says, the white stone is puzzling. It has been thought of of in relation to voting pebbles, an inscribed invitation to a banquet, a victory symbol, an amulet, or a counting pebble. He says that it seems best to think, link the stone to the thought of the manna and see it as an allusion to an invitation that entitles its bearer to attend uh, the feast of the Lord rather than one of the feasts of the pagan uh, banquets. I think that's interesting. It was used as an invitation. The name written on it, of course, would entitle you to show that stone and to partake in the banquet before you, meaning that's you had to show your invitation at the door, and it would be this white stone with your name on it. And of course, we know that later on in the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place, and could this be our invitation? Very interesting to think of it that way. But there is another perspective concerning this stone. In those days, one writes, a white stone was put into a vessel by a judge to vote acquittal for a person on trial. It was also used like a ticket to gain admission to a feast, he says, so they concur in that perspective. Both would certainly apply to the believer in a spiritual sense. He has been declared righteous through faith in Christ and therefore acquitted of his sins. And he feasts with Christ today and will feast with him in glory at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus says that he will give this stone to those who overcome, resisting the temptation and allowing them to glorify God even to the point of laying their life down as martyrs for Christ. When it comes to the city of Pergamos, as some Christians there clung to their roots in paganism, others decided to live full on for God, even to the point of the abandonment of their own life. For the city of Pergamos, the word Pergamos itself means marriage. And it reminds us that we are truly married to Christ. And any interaction with a compromising position towards idols or pagan gods or philosophies of this world move us into what the Bible and James calls spiritual adultery. We must remain faithful to Jesus Christ. I'd like to read this to you and then close with uh, some application. One wrote, he says, compromise involves blending the qualities of two different things 
or conceding principles. While believers should cooperate in society as much as they can, they must avoid any allegiance, partnership, or participation that may lead to immoral practices. There can be no compromise between the loyalty to Christ and the sinful pleasures of this world or sexual immorality. Christians may differ in some areas, but there is no room for heretical and immoral moral impurity. Don't tolerate sin by bowing to the pressures to simply become seen as open-minded. Compromise today is being thrusted upon us. The world is asking us to compromise specifically today in the area of biblical morality. We are being asked to adopt the secular worldview as our own worldview and abandon our biblical worldview for the sake of uh, tolerance, acceptance, and love. The world has truly redefined all three of those worlds to, uh, words to fit their purposes. And in so doing, they have now required of us to initiate or to engage in this tolerance, which means today no longer living peacefully with someone who disagrees with us, but now also includes the fact that not only do we have to live peaceably with them, we are required to affirm them in everything that they do. When it comes to love, we don't truly love someone unless we continue to affirm all that in which they want to accomplish and to believe. Even our own president got up and told us that the greatest act of love that a parents can demonstrate to their child is to allowing them to transition from male to female or vice versa. Today we are put in a position where we are constantly being challenged to conform to the image of this world and it is here that we must resist. Churches that once were standing on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ are now decorated with rainbow pride flags. Guys, let us understand that the moral standard in which the Bible set down for us is not negated or super, uh, supervented. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the world has not superseded it by its enlightenment and the embracing of what we know to be sin. But how do we compromise? Now, this is where I want to get into a little bit more detail. Of course, it, it's concerning our practice. We should not practice these things. But do you know that the Bible says compromising may all, does also include approval? Romans tells us that in Romans chapter 1 very clearly. It's not only those who practice these things, it's those who approve of these things. Well, I would never do that, but who am I to say someone else should not do that? That would be considered biblical compromise also. But also the, the state of silence. When we are asked by someone directly and we choose to remain silent and we don't share our understanding of God's design for the person 
for marriage, etc., that too the Bible sees as compromise. Now, please, let me share with you. I totally believe in being tactful, choosing the right time, place, and opportunity to share these things. And I also believe that we should pick our battles. I also believe there's a time and a place that we should address things. But when we are given a clear open door to state what the biblical prescribed manners are, we have, I believe, a biblical responsibility to say something. You know, silence has been the great gateway of the decline of our society. If it doesn't start with us reinforcing biblical righteousness, where is biblical righteousness going to be found? It's not going to be found in this world. We must be very careful that we are not compromising in these things. We need to be very careful. Of course, there's doctrinal compromise also. Individuals, for example, we see now projects to advance the gospel where the Christian church has partnered with the Mormon church to forward a gospel. We are not talking about the same gospel. The Mormons do not hold to the same gospel we hold to, and there's no business for our partnership. We should not be involved in that. But the greatest historical example of this mixed marriage with the world has to take us back to 300 A.D., and the time in which Constantine allowed the Christian faith to become the prominent religion in Rome. And he did so by intermingling the pagan practices with the Christian practices, allowing for an easier digestion of the transition that he was asking the people to experience, both Christians and those who held to pagan gods. If you look at church history, you discover that that was such a pivotal moment in the church's history, an example, that it really took the church off track. And by the 1400s, when the reformers were trying to bring it back to a more biblical basis, understand what had to happen for that to occur. It was a very, very brutal period of time in history. We are not meant to be married with the world. We are to be separate from the world. Though we are in the world, we are not of the world. Though we are called desperately to love the sinner, we have no uh, obligation to love the sin. We have a dynamic opportunity before us, but nothing will destroy this opportunity more as if we choose to compromise rather than to continue steadfast, humbly in the convictions of Scripture and walk with our Lord through this time to glorify Him in and through all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time in Your Word today and those things that we have learned from it. Father, help us to be faithful to You in this time in which we live. 